It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, December 7th. This is your KVMR Evening News. Starting January 1st, the state decriminalizes something most of us are probably guilty of doing at some point in our life, jaywalking. The pros and cons of footloose and fancy-free pedestrians coming up on the California Report. Then, as holiday shopping kicks into high gear, California News Service looks at what's in store for small businesses. And a KVMR News First Edition. Hear what you missed in yesterday's Nevada County Board of Supervisors meeting in the inaugural episode of Soups On. And KVMR's Julia Gem gets to the heart of the season with a look at Nevada County Food and Toy Run. This is the California Report. I'm Mari Bolaños in San Francisco. After a first day of bidding, developers are offering hundreds of millions of dollars towards offshore wind leases along California's coastline. KQED's climate editor Kevin Stark reports that the federal auction continues today and bids could soar even higher. So far, the combined bids rose above $400 million. The Interior Department auction for five lease areas along California's central and northern coast is a crucial step toward a new source of clean power for the state. The agency estimates floating turbines that harness energy from powerful winds could provide electricity to more than one and a half million homes and create thousands of new jobs. California and the feds identified hundreds of acres northwest of Morro Bay for offshore wind farms and further north off the coast of Humboldt. The state set a goal to develop up to 5 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030, quadrupling that by 2045. The auction will continue toward the end of the week. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. The Los Angeles City Clerk has given organizers the green light to start collecting signatures in their effort to recall Los Angeles City Councilmember Kevin DeLeon. DeLeon has refused to resign after he and two other council members used racist language in a taped conversation about redistricting. To qualify for the ballot, organizers will have to collect more than 20,000 valid signatures from registered voters in DeLeon's district by March 31st. He hasn't attended a city council meeting since mid-October, and his term runs until December 2024. Jaywalking. It's a law many of us have probably broken many times in our lives by crossing the street outside of designated crosswalks. But if you've ever thought twice about jaywalking because of fear of getting a ticket, that will soon change. Starting on January 1st, California's Freedom to Walk Act becomes law. It will prohibit police from writing jaywalking tickets unless people are caught trying to cross the street in clearly dangerous traffic conditions. The law is considered a victory for transportation advocates who want to make our cities and suburbs more pedestrian-friendly. My California Report colleague Saul Gonzalez talked about the pros and cons of decriminalizing jaywalking with John Yee. He's the executive director of Los Angeles Walks, which fights for people-centered planning. Saul and John met up on the streets of L.A.'s Koreatown. All right, John Yee, we are at the corner of Western Avenue and 7th Street in Koreatown, here to talk about the Freedom to Walk Act. Why did you want to meet me here? All right, so let's just check out the space. On one side of the street, you have Ralph's, a major grocery store that's incredibly popular amongst all the residents. And right across the street, you have tons of multi-unit residential buildings. You have a big hotel. 
a gigantic tower, a residential tower, and so what you naturally will then have is people crossing the street to get across. There's a lot of jaywalking. There's that a lot of jaywalking, here. yeah. But as you can see, there's no crosswalk between Seventh and Wilshire. There's this gigantic gap, and so people don't want to walk up or walk down, so they jaywalk. And so again, they're using the space which they feel is most safest, which is cross midway. And is that wise to you? Is is that a proper use of the street to cross at places outside of the crosswalk? I do it all the time. I do it because it's fast, efficient, and it feels safer. So in very practical terms at a, at a location like this, and so many other places like it, right, in many other California cities and suburban communities, what do you hope this new law accomplishes? What I hope new law, this new law accomplishes is A, less number of tickets given out to people who cross at that intersection right there, but also B, an understanding that people are jaywalking for a reason, not to be scofflaws, not to break the law, but because they want to get somewhere more efficiently and faster. And so by decriminalizing it, we're then giving a space to ask ourselves, why are people jaywalking to begin with? But we can't ask that question if we make it a crime. So when it comes to the Freedom to Walk Act and allowing people to cross the street outside of crosswalks, is that is that more important symbolically as a way of kind of taking back the streets than it is in terms of its day-to-day effect? That I love that question. And to be honest, I think yes. What I will say is this about the law. The law in itself will not save pedestrians. You have to have infrastructure change at the end of the day. You can't continue to build cities and neighborhoods based off of based off of cars, but yet people allowed to cross mid-street. We have to ask ourselves, why are people crossing mid-street? And once we answer that question, we should be able to make infrastructure changes to prevent people from doing it. So does that mean more crosswalks? Does that mean more street signage? Does that mean slower traffic? So those are the questions that should be followed up afterwards. But I agree. In a way, it's symbolic, but I think in a certain point, symbolism is also powerful. As you know, we're in the midst of a public safety crisis when it comes to the the safety of our streets. And a lot of pedestrians and cyclists are getting killed out there. Is this a wise thing to do? Keeping in mind, our streets are already pretty dangerous as they are now. I would say this. In isolation of the law, it may seem like pretty crazy why we decriminalizing jaywalking when the streets are already so dangerous. And I get that feeling, especially if you look at the law by itself. But if you look at the law in the larger scope of how we are decriminalizing public space for certain communities by changing our streets to be less car-centric, this is a part of a larger effort of really reprioritizing our public space for people walking and biking. All right. I've been talking to John Yee, Executive Director of Los Angeles Walks. John, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you. Appreciate it. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, Listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines the pursuit of good health, on the web at chcf.org lbca. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth, And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at schmidtfutures.org. Speaking of sidewalks and streets, one man in the small city of Healdsburg in Sonoma County recently decided to use his city's roundabout to run 36 miles. You might be wondering why anyone would want to do this. Well, Tate Dobson told the San Francisco Chronicle he had a similar thought two hours into this six-hour journey. The idea to run it occurred to him on a drunken night with friends as they passed by the roundabout. 
And last Friday, on his day off, he decided to see how many laps he could complete. The answer? 415 laps around the 460 feet roundabout. And it seems to have started a trend. Some Reddit and Strava users say they're planning their own roundabout run in their hometowns. And that's the California Report for Wednesday, December 7th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. The holiday shopping frenzy is fast approaching. Some may argue it's well underway. Big box stores and online behemoths are one thing, but what's the season looking like for small local businesses? California News Service's Suzanne Potter has the details. This holiday season, shopping at local small businesses could bring them as much as $88 billion, according to a survey from Intuit QuickBooks. The poll finds 80% of small business owners say this holiday season is more important to their overall financial health than last year's. Diana Diaz, founder and CEO of the Goddess Mercado and Queer Mercado in East L.A., says she formed a collective so crafters could share the space, split the rent, and support each other's vision. I'm hearing a lot that we're going to be really impacted by recession, but what I see is that a lot of people are buying more crafty local art. So I have to continue to work hard and promote our brands, cross-promote our efforts. In the survey, shoppers said they intend to spend 40% of their holiday budget at small businesses, and about 70% of small business owners predict increased sales this year compared to 2021. This even as they fight the headwinds of rising costs, supply chain delays, labor shortages, and the slowing economy. Carolina Martinez is CEO of the California Association for Microenterprise Opportunity, known as Cameo. She says shopping at local small businesses is also more environmentally responsible. Going local to your main street helps the small business cut down on environmental waste associated with plastic packaging and cheaping and that reduces emissions and protect our waterways. A study by American Express shows 68 cents of every dollar spent in a local business will stay in the local economy, compared to only 48 cents of each dollar spent at large retail chains. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Turning our attention to your forecast from the National Weather Service, A brief period of dry weather is expected the next few days with low temperatures and morning fog. Precipitation returns by the end of the week with major mountain travel impacts over the weekend. Expect very difficult travel conditions with likely chain controls and possible road closures with low visibility due to a combination of wind and heavy snow. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, patchy fog after 10 p.m., otherwise increasing clouds with a low around 33. Thursday, a 40% chance of showers, mainly after 2 p.m., mostly cloudy with a high near 45, breezy with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, widespread freezing fog after 10 p.m., mostly cloudy with a low around 15. Thursday, widespread freezing fog before 10 a.m., and a slight chance of snow showers after 10 a.m., cloudy with a high near 33. Breezy with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour. The National Weather Service has issued a winter storm watch for the end of the week and this weekend. After a couple of quiet days, we'll see the return of winter weather beginning Thursday. Winds will become strong across Sierra ridgelines with increased breezes into lower valleys. 
There's the potential for up to six inches of snow along the Sierra Crest late Thursday into Friday. Moving into the weekend, winds remain strong, with heavy Sierra snow creating major travel impacts throughout the entire weekend. Saturday and Sunday are likely to have the most snow. Combined with strong winds, we may see periods of whiteout conditions and power outages. Snow totals of 20 to 30 inches above 7,000 feet are possible. Travel across the Sierra is not recommended this weekend. If you must travel, the National Weather Service recommends packing supplies and preparing for long delays. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, patchy fog otherwise increasing clouds with a low around 39. Thursday, patchy fog before 9 a.m. with a high near 54. Showers mainly later in the day after 4 p.m. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Up ahead, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza sits down with KVMR's Julia Gem for a KVMR News First. Welcome to Soups On, where the news team takes a close look at what the Nevada County Board of Supervisors tackled at their latest meetings. Julia, you attended yesterday's meeting of the Board of Supervisors. Looking at the agenda here, it, it seems like they took care of a lot of business. Yeah, there were 40 items on the agenda. Many of them were oriented around financial grants and other money-related issues, but there were a couple that definitely stood out to me. Yeah, let's talk about those. Well, there was item number 14, which was part of the consent calendar. Its purpose was to approve the application of California's Cannabis Equity Grants Program. Mm, That's the program that aims to level the playing field, so to speak, right? Yes, the purpose of each equity program is to support those who have been disproportionately impacted by the drug war. What's the consent calendar? Explain that to me. Yeah, the consent calendar consists of non-controversial items. In this case, it was items number three through 34. I see. So they just, they vote everything in at once. Yes. All of the consent calendar is voted on at one time. What other items are on that consent calendar? Um, Well, there was item number 15, which was a resolution approving the PG&E electric vehicle fleet program agreement. Interesting. What is that? It's basically a, a program meant to install charging infrastructure for local electric transportation, like buses. Oh, wow. Yeah, this item in particular pertained to the engineering, design, and construction of public utility upgrades at 12350 Labar Meadows Road in Grass Valley. That's the county's newest yard over near McKnight Way, right? Yes, it, it looks like the county's goal is to eventually move into a mostly electric space to reduce carbon emissions. Great. Anything else? Um, Well, I personally find item number 39 to be especially interesting. What is item 39? Item 39 discussed the authorization to purchase a Lenco Bearcat G3 armored vehicle. An armored vehicle? Yes. The county needs an armored vehicle? Well, actually, we already have one. Um, It's called the MRAP, and it's very powerful. The MRAP? Yes. And so we need to replace it. Why? Well... There's a couple of drawbacks of the MRAP. It's huge and heavy. It weighs 48,000 pounds. And so it can't really access narrow roadways or bridges. And it requires special licensing to operate, which only one staff member possesses. And presumably the new vehicle can be driven by anybody on the force? Yes. The Bearcat is lighter. It weighs only 17,000 pounds. And it only requires a Class C license to drive. Um, And it can carry more personnel than the MRAP. Do you know how much it was? 
it was $376,000. Did that pass? Yes, it did. Was it controversial at all? Um, actually, the board, the reception from the board to the proposal was pretty positive because of the MRAP's several issues. It seems like a, like a reasonable replacement for the MRAP. And what happens to the MRAP if, well, it sounds like they did approve it. So what happens now to that MRAP vehicle? Well, there was brief discussion of the process of disposing it, and it appears that it would be cost-free to dispose of. Um, initially, it would be offered to surrounding local agencies, and if nobody wanted it, then it would just be disposed of. And you said it did pass? Yes. Was there any public comment? There was one audience member that called in, and he was quoted as saying that he's never heard a response needing this vehicle, and so he did not believe that the Bearcat would be necessary for our county to have. Hmm. All right. So the county is applying for grant money to yes. help people get into the legal cannabis industry. Yes. PG&E is helping to electrify the county fleet. Yes. And we're getting a new armored vehicle. We will be the proud owners of a 17,000 pound armored vehicle. Wow. Interesting stuff. When's the next meeting? The next meeting occurs on December 13th. All right, Julia. Well, thanks so much for your reporting. Thank you for having me. The Nevada County Toy Run rides again, and this year marks a return to the traditional route, which sees motorcycles wind through downtown Grass Valley and onto Mill Street, bringing toys and food to over 400 families in the process. KVMR's Julia Jem has more. The Nevada County Food and Toy Run is a local tradition that continues to be upheld by noble volunteers. It's an event that strives for the truly good cause of providing disadvantaged children in Nevada County with toys and delicious food on Christmas Day. To learn a little more about this year's toy run, I sat down with Eric Oliver to discuss the ins and outs of the event. Welcome, Eric. Uh, Would you mind giving yourself a small introduction for anyone who may not know how you're affiliated with the Nevada County Food and Toy Run? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, My name's Eric Oliver. I'm just a local beekeeper, and I took over the toy run last year with with a group of individuals, Shannon Bueller, Chelsea Bueller, Ed Peavy, and a few others. And um, we, we... Pulled it off by the seat of our pants last year, and this year we're getting more organized and getting our stuff together and um, looking forward to next weekend's event. Great. And I want to start off by asking for anyone listening who may not know, what exactly is the Nevada County Food and Toy Run? Well, a toy run in general is any, any motorcycle event is usually called a run if it goes from point A to point B. And that's what this is, is we all meet in Nevada City at the Rood Center on uh, the second Saturday of every December Motorcycles gather there with toys and food strapped to their bikes, and we parade through Nevada City, through Grass Valley with all the intersections shut down by local law enforcement, and we end up at the Nevada County Fairgrounds where we unload the toys onto tables and then spend the rest of the day having families come through and get to pick out toys for their kids who might otherwise not get toys for Christmas. Each family that comes through has the option of taking home a Christmas dinner as well. This year we have turkeys, spiral-cut hams, and chickens, along with a 10-pound sack of potatoes and all the fixings that go along with that. And if anyone is interested in donating or participating in the run in some way, how should they go about doing that? If they want to drop off toys, uh, normally we have the boxes set up, but we're starting to collect those because the event's coming up so soon. So I'll be at the fairgrounds on Friday before the event from noon to six. If they want to come into gate one, just to the main building, they can drop off toys. If they want to donate monetarily, um, we're at NC Toy Run, 
both on Venmo and PayPal. You can reach out to me directly, 530-277-5004, and we can meet up for a sponsorship. Um, you can also just get on our website, nevadacountytoyrun.com. That'll give you all the information as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And um, is there anything else you'd want to add? Just again, we meet at the Eric Rood building, which is the county building off of Highway 49. Um, you, we gather there as early as 8 or 9 in the morning. We have coffee and donuts for anybody that gets there early and wants to mingle and check out all the motorcycles. Everybody slowly comes in throughout the morning. And then we leave the Rood Center at 12 o'clock noon. And no, I'd just like to thank everybody that's been involved as well as the sponsors. This thing wouldn't happen without all the local businesses reaching out and donating money. It costs us quite a bit to pull it off. And without the businesses, we wouldn't be able to do so, as well as the Food Bank of Nevada County, Interfaith Food Ministry, Head Start Program, and everyone else involved helping out with the toy run. Awesome. Thank you so much. No problem. That's our newscast for this December 7th. Visit us online at kvmr.org and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties and San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com and Nevada County Citizens for Choice, promoting reproductive justice and equitable reproductive health care access, advocacy, education with compassionate services for women, men, and teens. Learn more at citizensforchoice.org. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Thursday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.